You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all again this morning, this Sunday morning. If you have your Bible with you, I'd like to encourage you to open with me to the book of Ephesians. I know, surprise, not Philippians, Ephesians. If you've been around here for a little while, you know that one of the things that we do on a kind of every, every once in a while, we just kind of drop a break. Usually it's right around the month of July, the month of December. We, we might drop in a, a break that kind of is, is, is separate from the regular study that we're going through, but allows us to think specifically, more specifically, about a particular topic that uh, we've discussed and maybe thought might be a good thing for us to think about as a church. And so... This month, the topic that we're taking on for the next five weeks, including this week, is the idea that your gospel is too small. So that's the the main topic we have before us for the next five weeks. That's the thing we're going to be thinking about from different passages of, of Scripture. Your gospel is too small. And so we're going to try to think together about some of the ways that we've maybe short circuited, that we've not seen the full depths of what truth the gospel can speak into our lives. The power that this that this thing has, this message, this declaration, this proclamation as it's made over our lives as believers speaks with such power. Some of what we just sang about communicates that to us. And we want to try to help ourselves be able to see it more. Um, we are in a world right now that, that really misunderstands the whole idea of salvation. And there really, I think, are two major categories of error that, they're, that we're likely to fall into when we think about this. The, the first is, is an idea about salvation that says, well, um, what we want to look for is, is prosperity in our life right now. Like, what, what, do we have everything that makes our lives look successful and happy and all of those things on the outside? And as, as Christians who read our Bible, we recognize that suffering is a real reality for Christians. And so we need, to, we need to be willing to throw off this idea of a, of a prosperity gospel, as it's sometimes called. But I fear that sometimes when we do that, in an effort to, to, to push off the prosperity, we've sometimes pushed away some of the very blessings that God intends to give us in our lives right now. And the opposite error then that we can fall into is by pushing everything ahead toward the future, toward heaven, saying, okay, well, right now life is hard and difficult, but, but when we get there in heaven, everything will be okay, so let's just tough it up now. Our hope is that by looking at this, at, at the gospel, thinking together about the gospel, we will be able to see that there is truth, blessing, joy to be found even now. It belongs to us now. There's a new creation now. There is a status change now. There's an identity change now. And none of that means that we're embracing uh, some false gospel. Rather, we're seeing the expansive work of God. And so that's what I want to try to help us think about this morning. We don't want to be a people who try to separate off, well, uh, that Christianity is, is just about what happens after you die. No, that's not it. That's actually the topic for us this morning. As we think about these topics, we'll be thinking together about the gospel is more than. And for this week, the topic for us to think about is that the gospel is more than heaven. So we're not saying when we say that, that well, heaven, getting into heaven is, is, part of the go- is not part of the gospel. No, it absolutely is. That is what we get. 
We get to be in God's presence. We get that. But if that's all that we see, we're missing so much of the picture of what God has given us. And so we don't want to cordon off uh, our faith and just think about it as life after death. Instead, we want to see the, the, the bright vision of what God is giving us. And there is perhaps no place in Scripture where we can more see the brightness of the riches that belong to the believer than in Ephesians chapter 1. And so what I'd like to start with this morning is for us to just kind of read through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. I was talking with Pastor Kevin here just a bit ago. There is no way that in 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes on a Sunday, we're going to exhaust the truth of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. This is an astounding passage. And if we were to just walk through this word by word, line by line, we'd be here to next week. We would not be able to exhaust this. It is amazing the things that are here. And I want to try to help us capture that vision to see a little bit of what's here. And the way I'd like for us to do that first is I'm going to read this passage. And what I would like for you to do now, even as we read it, is to pay attention, listen as we're reading to the things that belong to believers in this passage. What do you hear is true about Christians because of this passage? All right, so we're going to read through this, and I'd like for us to hear it. Now, I, I almost can't read it out loud without saying as an aside, your translators have, have done you a favor by adding punctuation in this passage. If you try to read this passage in Greek, you can't tell where one sentence ends and the other begins because Paul is just so, it seems that he's just so astounded by the truths that he's sharing. It's like, and then, and then, and then, and then, in him this, and this, and it just keeps going. So I want, I want you to hear that momentum. I want you to hear the excitement in this letter to Paul as we read this. Listen for the things that are true of you as a believer. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we hear, we hear this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he favored us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in him, regarding his plan of the fullness of the times to bring all things together in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance to the plan of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of the promise, who is the first installment of our inheritance." in regard to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word.
Do you see a few things in there that belong to believers? You know, most of us, we live in, the, we live in or near the city. We're not particularly good at looking at stars. They sort of just fade into the background. We know a, a few of them, a handful of constellations. Maybe we know the names of most of us, but they're, they're just sort of a few bright points that sit up there at night. We know a few constellations, we know a few stars, but, but maybe we don't, we, we don't really know much. In fact, uh, they, they just sort of move the way they move, and nothing really surprises us about what's there. We can, we can barely see them. This week, I was reading about this, this observatory that's in the process of being opened, and, and next year, they hope to begin viewing. It's the Vera C. Rubin Observatory. Parts of it are built in, in California, and it's going to be placed in Chile is, is where, where it is. And so there are these lenses that are, that are like the size of a person. They're like multiple lenses. And the, the mirrors are even bigger. And the whole idea of this telescope is not that, not, that, not that there aren't big telescopes like the James Webb or others that are in space. But the idea of this one is to try to, to, try to capture a, a, an extremely high resolution, giant picture of the sky. So instead of focusing in on, on one little star, or one little patch of sky, they want to be able to capture the entire picture of the sky. And they want to take pictures uh, again and again. And they said, after one year, they'll have more data from this telescope than from all of the other observation combined because of how they'll be able to look at everything. What they expect to be able to see are some surprising things because of the detail. The resolution on this thing is going to be allow them, allow them they say, to be able to see something the size of a golf ball, the distance from the earth to the moon. They'll be able to see uh, asteroids and chart those things as they're, as they're uh, in the sky. If they're looking at a star that we see, it's going to basically break the telescope. So they essentially have to filter those things out so they'll be able to see, see what's there. And what they expect to find is that, that uh, parts of the, the sky that we can't even see, that we sort of just take for granted, are moving in kind of unexpected ways. And they expect to be able to explore the theories of dark matter and other things that we don't understand about the universe or trying to better understand. They're connections they haven't made. They don't know yet. And they plan to do that for 10 years in their research. Well, brothers and sisters, I think that, that you and I looking at the gospel, you and I looking at a passage like this is a lot like the way you and I in the city look at the night sky. We don't have the big picture. We don't see everything that's there. Nothing surprises us. Things aren't really moving in unexpected ways. Everything sort of is just there doing what it does, and it fades into the background. We have a kind of, of light pollution. There's a pollution in our view of the gospel. We talked about it last week, that, that classic Christian trio, biblical trio of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It creates a kind of pollution in our lives so that the gospel, the gospel, the glorious truth of the gospel fades into the background. It becomes a part of the scenery. And it's my hope that as we take this time together as a church, that what we're doing is sort of setting ourselves up an observatory, a way to be able to capture the big picture of what God is doing in the gospel. And to look past just the, the big points that we already recognize and we assume we know everything that's there. And instead we see, now nah, there there's so much more going on. There's so much more for us to see. And for us to just start this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna just only be scratching the surface. Look at the big words that Paul uses here. 
He speaks about the riches of the grace of God. He speaks about lavishing these riches on us. He talks about to the praise of his glory. These are huge words, and I do not think that an astronomical comparison is far-fetched. We need to think bigger about the gospel. We're not there yet. It's true that, that, that in, in a sense, we can explain it simply. Right? We, we, can, we can say that we know we were created by God. We know that we are fallen and turned from him in sin, but that God became one of us, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died in our place so that he took the penalty and then he raised again. He has ascended into heaven and he's coming again. We can, we can name the, the big stars, but there's so much more. So we can say it and we can communicate it and it's simple in just a few seconds, but we take our lives trying to understand how many blessings does Paul say that we have in verse three? All of them. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You and I can't settle for a gospel that just says that we go to heaven. It is that, but it is so much more. And so let's try to see that this morning. I want to encourage you, take some time to, to look at this passage this week and see what you can find. Again, we couldn't go through it line by line. What I've done is I've, I've taken some of those things that I can see that belong to us in Christ and sort of group them together in categories for us to think about this morning. And so the first one for us to consider is that if the gospel is only heaven, then we miss the glory of God's redemptive, gracious choice. You, you see it in the text, right? In, in verse four, he says, just as he, the father, chose us in him, the son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. All of this, the whole picture, everything begins and ends with God. It's his work. And so he, from the very beginning, knows exactly who he's going to grab. He knows exactly what he's going to do. None of what happens in the universe is a surprise to this God. But this choice isn't just uh, random. It isn't just... Uh, uh, capricious or, or some other not, you know, just out there rationale, what is it based on? It, it's based on his grace. That's where we find it. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. You just keep going and reading the whole thing again. To the praise, what does all of that lead up to? The praise of the glory of his grace is what he says in verse six. God's will is that he would lavish this grace on his people. Fill them with these riches. They have so much they don't even know what to do with them. I remember a... A time uh, very early on in our marriage when we had our, our uh, oldest daughter. 
she was just born, and we didn't have a lot of money, and we were trying to figure out how to get clothes and uh, how, to, how to provide for her. And I, I, I say this respectfully as possible. There was a, a kind of distant family member who, had, who was having some trouble with, like, mental health stuff going on. And um, the way that that resulted in her life was that she wanted to go shopping, and she knew there was a baby coming, and she just went shopping. And she bought clothes and clothes and clothes and clothes and clothes. <laughs> and it was this weird situation because you're like, well, well hold on. Like, you, you can't, you don't want to do that. You can't, you know, like, we're trying to say, yeah, don't, don't do that. Like, take it back. It's okay. Like, don't, we'll figure it out. But they, they worked it all out and they figured it out. And they're saying, no, 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 it's fine. Take it. We want you to have it. And this is what it's going to be. And we ended up just having to say, okay, this is God's provision. But we had baby clothes coming out of our ears. We had baby clothes that were lavished on us. We had more than we knew what to do with. That only scratches the surface of what God is doing in in selecting his people. We can see and we should know when when we read words like redemption that we hear, our salvation, the redemption of God's own possession, in verse 14, we should hear these echoes that carry all the way through the Bible. Redemption is a kind of purchasing of a, of a people. It's, it's a, when you redeem a coupon, you get the service. You get the ice cream cone or whatever it is, right? That's, that's redeeming. When, when God rescues his people out of slavery, he purchases them and brings them out. The, the picture of that in the Old Testament is the picture of God's people in Egypt. They were enslaved being oppressed by Pharaoh, told, you know, you need, to, you need to build this, work harder. Oh, and we're going to take away all the tools for you to do it. Make more with less. And the people cried out and God heard them. In the wandering in the Old Testament, the people cried out and God heard them. He was bringing them through it. The New Testament uses that as a picture of what Jesus has done, that he is a Passover lamb bringing his people out of sin and into this new land. Part of seeing God's great overarching choice, his will, his plan, is seeing this story as it connects to everything. We live in the world that is created, made by a good creator. It is a fallen world now where there is a mix of good creation and the consequences of sin. You and I, every one of us, we are rebels against that good God. When we hear this proclamation of the gospel, when we hear, even while you were enemies, Christ died for you. We can't shout about grace loudly enough. And then we read here that that God has already sent an installment of our inheritance. He sent a seal to bring us to the end, the Holy Spirit. He's working to secure this. Some consequences and ways to think about what this means for us. This whole idea of redemption means that the work of Christ was not an accident. The idea that that God here foreordained, he planned before the foundation of the world means that he's not surprised by anything. 
The suffering of Christ was not a surprise. It was intended from the beginning. Jesus, of course, was the only person who's ever suffered who was in a place to be able to have the perfect wisdom and knowledge to know if that was worth doing, and he did it. That's where his love is on display. This means that for you and I, the mix of sin and suffering that we live in, the the joy and hope, all kind of intermingled together, is not an accident. All of this, the difficulty that we're in right now, the good things that, we're, that we have right now, the blessings, are the setting of the story. As we're talking about an ABF, it's the heat, the rain, it's the weather, it's the setting of the work that, God's, that God is doing. Too much of a heaven focus can give us a just a tell me how it ends kind of view. And I hope you're not one of those. I'm not, sure how to, I'm not sure how to approach that one, but if you, if you, if you want to start a movie or a book and then you're just like, I don't care, just tell me how it ends. I've never understood that. There's something about the journey. There's something about waiting to see what happens next. There's something about being a part of it along the way and and, and feeling all of that as as it happens. That's a part of what God intends for us too. So as a way of, of application for us to think about this, one thing that we can do this week is that we can pray, pray that you you can see the places where the depths of the gospel story speak to your life today and strive to see it. We need to work at seeing these depths. We have to work at seeing it. It's too easy for us to to assume that we've got it down, to just want to know the highlights. But God is doing this massive thing. His, His plan is astounding we should fall more in love with it. Now, look, I've known people along the way who can give you all of the theological answers. They understand the story. They get it. They can give, you, they can give it to you, but they're missing it. How does that happen? Eventually, they'll fall away. There are some warning signs as that's happening. There are things like prayer becomes weak or non-existent. Fellowship is superficial or avoided. They, they keep all of this stuff about what God's doing and the plans and the works, and they keep it in an in a, in a intellectual category. And I think that's one of the things, again, that can happen here if we think of the gospel as only about heaven. The second thing for us to see this morning is that the gospel is only heaven, then we can't see that love, relationship, is the thing that drives the triune God. If the gospel is only heaven, then we can't see that love is the thing that drives the triune God. Look all through this passage and you see again and again this amazing language of relationship. That is so in contrast to the way others think about, think about God and creation. 
In the ancient world, the stories that they told about the creation of the world, it would have to do with a conflict or a war, or maybe the gods making some kind of bet or a wager. That's not what we see in the Bible. On the contrary, what we see in the Bible is a God who is creating out of an overflow of his love. It's sheer joy that God creates from, a desire to display his glory. God the Father, Son, and Spirit didn't need you and I. There's no part of creation that's de- that, that uh, God is depending on for anything. God has everything that he needs. But out of joy, out of this desire to put his glory on display, it's, it almost seems belittling, but it's, but it's almost like saying, just for the fun of it. Like it's, it's not in a, in a downplaying way, but in just this like, it's just out of joy. Why did, why did you do this? Because, because, I, because I would love to. Why not? Isn't it great? It's an overflow of his love, a displaying of his glory. Look at all the relational language in this passage. We hear God called the father, that's one you could stop and think about for a little bit, that we get to call God Father. That is astounding. There's another fascinating word that we see here um, in chapter or in verse five. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters, we read here. Now, this is one of those passages that's interesting. All in all, the, the NASB 2020 has done a really good job in adding uh, language that's, that fits the more the way that we use gendered language in, our, in the 21st century English, right? So we use uh, sons and daughters and things like that. But one of the things that's really important here and that we don't want to miss is that this word was used, the word here translated as adoption as sons, or they're giving us sons and daughters. That's okay to say because it is sons and daughters. But what we don't want to miss is that the question, the reason this word was used is an adoption as a son was to nominate the person who was going to receive your inheritance, that's, that's the word that was used. That's the idea. So, so who's, who's the next one in line receiving the inheritance? We are adopted as sons, brothers and sisters, adopted as sons in a strange way. Sons and daughters, receivers of this inheritance, brought into the family. Do you hear the family language? In him. The kind intention of his will. Do you hear the tenderness? That, that being brought in, no, you're, you're a family. Those bonds of family that are, that are deep, that commitment is a picture of, of what God is doing and what God is bringing us into. God himself is relationship, and we, it says, are seated with Jesus a little bit ahead in chapter two. We are brought along with him. It's astounding in these verses that you can see every member of the Trinity at work. Did did you notice that as we went through? It begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then all the way throughout, as God the Father is choosing and predestining and doing this work, the place where it's happening is in Jesus Christ, through Jesus, in him, in the beloved. 
There's that family, that loving, tender language again. And then eventually it gets on to the point where it says that, that the first installment is given to us of our inheritance. And what is it? Having believed in verse 13, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of the promise. The Holy Spirit is this guarantor. It's the beginning of our lives. It's like taking an envelope and sealing it and saying, this guarantees that this will not be opened until it's received on the other side. That's the picture. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of inheritance. All of this points to remind us again of this relationship. Pastor Kevin reminded us here in ABF about just how, how significant it is to ask ourselves questions about how is your prayer life? How are you talking to God? What does that look like for us? The entire Christian life is not just meant to be a, a fire insurance policy for get out of hell at the end and then you're done with it. No, it's a relationship with God that's beginning in the here and now. That's what it is. There's a, there's a fantastic question that I know we've used it before. Some of you will have heard it. John Piper has asked this question. He says, uh, essentially, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but if there's, if there's a place, if there's a heaven that you could go to and you could have all of the things that you want, the family that you lost, the food that you love, the things that you like to have, all of that is there, but there's no Jesus there. Is that a place where you would want to go? And I love the way that question poses this for us because it helps remind us of what is the relationship that needs to be front and center. The reality is none of those things would be satisfying apart from Jesus. It's only the grace of God, the giver of all good things, that there, that there is good in anything. He is the one that all of these other things are pointing toward. That's the relationship that matters. And so if we're thinking about heaven, if we want to say we're, we're going to miss the gospel if we only look ahead at heaven, what we can miss is the, the very definition of heaven. And it is really not so much a place, but a person. In the Bible, again and again, we see where heaven is, is the place where God dwells. We're not just talking about the stars or somewhere out there. We're saying the place where God dwells. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was able to say heaven is among you when he was present with his people. You and I are already living a new creation if we have trusted in Christ. It has already begun in our hearts and God himself by his grace is, has promised to bring about the rest of that. As bit by bit we see it begin now. it would be a dangerous thing for us to miss that relationship is at the center of what the gospel is. It's not like God just gave you the keys to a car and said, see you on the other side. He got in with us. 
He's along the journey. He's in the furnace. He's in the difficulty. He's in the middle of all of it. And it is a, it is a relationship where you, you don't know, you know, when, you, when you're talking to somebody and you're not exactly sure what they're going to say or what they're going to do next, that's what's fantastic about relationships. We don't, we don't know. Now, God, of course, perfectly does, but, but he's brought us into this kind of relationship with him. We don't know exactly where he's going to lead us next. And he's brought other believers around us to be able to speak truth into our lives too. And we are committing and giving ourselves to this amazing thing that God is doing. And it would be a shame if we considered it just to be a, a concept or something abstract. A concept can't die for your sins. And a doctrine can't forgive you. A checkbox cannot be your savior. God the Father sent God the Son to save you and God the Spirit to guarantee and bring you home. Some of, this, some of us really need to hear this and we need to consider this because we, can, we are in danger of being, trying to be, thinking that we are too self-sufficient. Christianity, we think, is something that we can kind of just do on autopilot. You know, it'll, it'll kind of fall into the background. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm doing all this other stuff right now. No, 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 I don't have time for all that. Uh-uh. We can't do that. It won't work on autopilot. You are invited into an incredibly glorious relationship with God. You can see a, a, an interesting way that all around us, people are always trying to get closer to somebody who's famous, you know? Like, this, so-and-so uh, came, to the, came to the store the other day, or such-and-such shook my hand. They wrote their name on something. You see these weird things where people, like, write, name, write their names on, on like, people's shirts and backs and all kinds of stuff. Not if, if you have one of those, no offense, I guess. But what is that? What's that impulse that makes us do that? Why, why would people do, why, what's so important about that, that you would want to do that? I want to, I want to suggest to you that there is a, there's an inborn desire in your heart that is causing you to desire to be near someone who is glorious, who has fame, who has power, who has worth. We all have this desire to be close to that. And the thing is, it just, it can't be fulfilled in this world. It's not possible. The reality is though, you were created for a relationship with the creator of the universe. Talk about more power, more glory than you can imagine. That's the one who you get to wake up in the morning and say, thank you, God, for another day. How astounding is that? And how easy for it, uh, is it for us with all of the pollution of life to let that just fade into the background and not be something that we think about? The relationship that you and I have as a part of the gospel that's initiated by God, guaranteed by God, should be something that we never take for granted. Let's commit ourselves by way of application to rid ourselves 
of self-sufficiency. It has no place in the life of the believer. That's going to mean a lot of different things for, for a lot of different folks. But consider that for your life. What are the ways where you think, man, if I can just check off the boxes, if I can just do the things, everything is going to be fine. It's not enough. It'll never be enough. What we need instead is a, a radical work of God. Finally, the third group that I have here of, of things that belong to us in the gospel as a part of the work of, of Christ helps us to see that if the gospel is only heaven, then we miss the guarantee of total transformation in him. If the gospel is only heaven, then we miss the guarantee of total transformation in him. Total transformation. You know, there is this kind of thing. It's a, a kind of a way of, of thinking about life. It's a, um, you know, you've heard the saying, like, people who are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, or that kind of thing, or, or a kind of lifeboat theology. Have you, have you heard of this? Like, the question is, why does God not just snatch us up as soon as we trust in Christ? Okay, they believe. Good, go, come on. Come on up. Why is it that we go on living the life that we live? What's, what is the purpose of it? Well, God obviously has a plan for our personal sanctification. He has a plan for what we're doing, what he's doing and completing in our lives here and now. But one way of thinking that, one way of answering that kind of question that people have tried to use is to just say, well, basically, this world is a sinking ship, and it's our job to get as many people off of it as we can. There's some ways that the metaphor helps, right? It gives us some urgency. It says, hey, there's destruction on the way, and that's true. There is destruction on the way. There's judgment that is coming, and we need to be warning people about that. But if we go too far in just thinking about the world as sinking and it's all going to burn, then, then we miss some of what God is calling us to do. There, there's lots of, of, of ways that we just don't quite get this right or we don't, we don't see it all. And I, I want to suggest to you that, that even some of the things that we're prone to say sometimes can overdo it on this. The Bible certainly calls us pilgrims, wanderers, people who don't quite belong, we're in a city that doesn't belong to us. But a song like, as much as I love it because I love bluegrass, I'll fly away, that's not really a, a very Christian song. Don't get me wrong, like, that's, a, that's a fun song. But the idea that all, all we're doing here is just holding out because one day I'm going to fly away. I'm not going to have anything to do with any of y'all. That's not a Christian message. Right? Because this is a world that, is, that it has a creator, and God has not forsaken his creation. Look with me at verse 10. It says, regarding his plans in the fullness of the times, of the fullness of the times, to bring all things together in Christ. That's like one big word, this like summing up of everything together bringing up everything that is and everything all around. And, and it all comes to a point to summarize what it is. The answer is Jesus. All creation is headed. What's the question? The answer is Jesus. You know, 
we could push that whole lifeboat question back one more and we could say, why did God not just destroy the earth as soon as Adam and Eve sinned? Kick him out of the garden, you're done, the end. No, he made a promise to them. And he said, even in the midst of this broken world, this broken relationship, even with as bad as everything is right now, I'm going to redeem you. You can trust in my promises. And even a few chapters later in Genesis, when God finally says, you know what? I'm done. I'm destroying it. We're starting over. And he decides he's going to send a flood. What does he do? Does he destroy everything? No. He, he has Noah build a boat and, and gather up as much creation as he can on it to bring it through the waters, to carry it through to the other side. All of these things are pictures of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is the ark that brings the good of creation through to the other side. Everything is summed up in him. As we are in him, we're carried through the waters of judgment out to the other side. And we should think about what this means. It means that there are points of I'm going to use some big words here. There are points of continuity and discontinuity. Sometimes we use already and not yet around here. This is very similar. But if you think about something that continues, there's continuity. There's things that continue from this fallen state into the future. And then there are points of discontinuity, things that are different between now and when Jesus finally returns. So let's think together about some of the discontinuity. We know that when Jesus finally returns, when heaven and earth join together and things are finally as they were meant to be, there will be no sadness, sickness, decay, sin, anger, quarreling, right? On down the list. None of those things will have any place in that world. There is also surprising uh, discontinuity. So there are things like we read and in, in, uh, we read Jesus say that marriage does not exist. That's an interesting one. I don't know what all that means and how all that plays out, but that's a surprising thing to hear. I, I would have thought. What we find is it's a picture of a, of a greater reality that's happening there. There's also interesting continuity, things that, that do continue. We find Jesus, when he's raised, eating and drinking, and we see uh, looking forward to a meal Jesus became alive in flesh, not just a spiritual disembodied existence. And that's the hope that you and I have as well. He was the first to be raised and you and I will be raised like him as well. There will be things that continue then. Eating, drinking, there will be things like uh, the bodies. There will be things like our character, our love, the building of a city, music. So many things do continue on to the other side. Now, what we want to be aware of is we don't want to fix our hope then on those things. But this does speak to us about biblical hope. We can see here, it's speaking about hope, that we who were the first to hope in him. Chapter 18, we hear about the hope of his call, or in verse 18, we read about the hope of his calling. This is why Christians have always and can always take the lead in work surrounding justice in this world. 
because we don't require that everything depends on us to get it all done, but that we can know that this is the character of God and this is the decisions he's calling me to make here and now. And one day it will be perfect. The, the, one of the, the most amazing and clearest um, pictures of this is um, that Christians essentially invented the idea of hospice. You know, the, the whole, like, when, when someone is dying and, the, and you decide, well, there's nothing else that we can do but provide comfort and those things. In that situation, there's no winning, right? If that's the point, we're in a fallen world, we're saying, this is it, death is coming. But Christians all over the world for centuries have said, you know what? This is a person that is made in the image of God and they deserve dignity until the very end. Are we winning on the outside, it looks like absolutely not. There is discontinuity. Death is going to happen. But there are things that the worth of that individual and the, and the work that is done in caring for them, those are going to build a, a new world, a new creation. Those things carry through the ark of Jesus onto the other side in the new world. And I want to suggest to you that even if you don't work in hospice, which most of us don't, your work has the same kind of character. The house that you're working to build, the uh, program that you're trying to build, most of these things are not going to last. They're going to be gone. They're going to burn, right? Something's going to happen there. We don't know, we don't know what. Companies are going to fall apart. Somebody's going to build something newer and better, and it's going to be over. That's going to be the end of it. But I want to suggest to you that all along the way, as we are doing the work that God has set before us, there is character being built in you. There's a witness to the person who's next to you. There is a broader, invisible reality of what God is doing that I can't even share because I don't know it. God is doing an amazing work all around us. And I love it when I see, it's my favorite thing when I see Christians doing something that makes the world look at them and say, why would you do that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Because that prompts the question, why, why would you? And the answer is because of Jesus. Because we have a hope. Because there's, a, there's an unseen reality there are blessings that have been lavished on us that you don't know about. There's a future that I can only begin to scratch the surface of. By way of application, I hope that you will allow this future certainty, this hope, allow the certainty to inform you, inform your present hope. Allow the future certainty to inform your present hope. The thing you're doing might not be a success in the world's eyes, but if it is what God is calling you to, then it's, you can't lose. Every part of our lives, the, the, the chance to share the gospel with a family member, the, the uh, relationships that we're building with our neighbors, all of these things will continue to have a lasting impact as we see the way that the gospel has these ripple effects into everything else in the world. Too often, too often, we either have, a, have a, a view of the gospel that is so polluted 
with light that we can't see it. Or maybe we, we fix in like with a pair of binoculars on one little spot in the sky. But we need to step back. We need to see this big picture of what God is doing. Think about the words that Jesus prayed when he talked about heaven. What did he say? He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus himself looks forward to this perfect merging of heaven and earth. That earth would be like heaven is. That's how Revelation ends, with the heavenly city coming down, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the vision. It's these things united together. And you and I get the privilege of beginning to live in that new world, in that heaven right now. Let's not be people who take it for granted. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, we thank you again for your word. I certainly know that this is a passage that I can't even begin to scratch the surface on. There are so many things here to see about what you have done, all the way stretching from, from eternity past, and what you are doing, and what you have done, and what you will do. There is a certainty that we can see. There are riches that are hidden, and we don't know about them yet, but they belong to us. Help us to see it. Help us to know it. Help us to live it. God, I pray that we would be a people astounded by the proclamation of your gospel because we know we don't deserve it. And yet you and your grace, you lavish it anyway. God, we pray that as we, as we sing in this time and as we, as we go out from this place, that you would fill us with a love for you above all else. Help this, this gospel to be the, the thing that we can't stop talking about because we're so in love with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>